Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 347 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the science fiction anthology series Dimension 404 on Hulu. And this won't involve spoilers for the entire first season, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So, first up, we've got Anthony Ha, making his 10th appearance on the show. He covers media, advertising, and pop culture for the news site TechCrunch, where he also hosts the podcast Original Content, a chapbook of his short stories called Love Songs for Monsters, which was published by Youth in Decline in 2014, and he has a story forthcoming in Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet. So, Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks, I'm really excited to be back. The next up, we've got Andrea Kale, making her fifth appearance on the show. She's a graduate of the Odyssey Writers Workshop, and her short fiction appears in the Writers of the Future anthology, Fantasy Magazine, and Lightspeed. She's also a television writer and producer, was the script supervisor for Late Night with Conan O'Brien, and is the creator of the wildly popular Twitter feed Unhealthy Affirmations, Wisdom and Inspiration Reinterpreted for the Clinically Depressed. So, Andrea, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back and for, you know, acknowledging how wildly popular it is. It's wildly popular, for sure. <laughs> wildly popular. <laughs> And also joining us today is Tom Gerenser, who you may remember from our panel on Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency back in episode 281, and to our panel on Disenchantment back in episode 324. His short fiction appears in magazines such as Realms of Fantasy, and in books such as New Voices in Science Fiction and I, Alien. His short story, All Our Donkeys Were in Vain, appears in the new anthology, The Best of Galaxy's Edge, 2015 to 2017. So, Tom, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me back. Okay, so regular listeners to this podcast will know that I'm a big fan of these science fiction anthology shows. Uh, I used to watch the Twilight Zone with my dad, uh, the, the Twilight Zone revival in the 80s when I was growing up with my dad. We watched it every week, and it was great. And then when I was in college, there was a revival of The Outer Limits. And you had to really be dedicated back then to watch it because I was in college, and so there was just a TV down in the lounge in the dorm. And I think it was on at like 11 p.m. on Sunday nights or something like that. So every Sunday I would be down there sitting in the dark by myself watching Outer Limits. And then every once in a while somebody would walk by and be like, what are you, what are you watching? And I'd say, it's Outer Limits. It's awesome. Do you want to watch it with me? And they would say no. <laughs> uh, Poor Dave. And then, and then and now like Black Mirror is one of my favorite shows. Um, and yeah, now I get to tell people to watch – you know, I, I'm still that same guy just telling people to watch these anthology shows. And I don't know how many people are listening, but I just love them. So I'm, I guess I'm just kind of curious uh, if you guys love science fiction anthology shows uh, specifically as much as I do. So how about Anthony? Are you a big fan of science fiction anthology shows? I think that in general, I've liked the idea of the anthology show more than I've gone deeply into any of them. I mean, certainly I've watched you know, a lot of the original Twilight Zone when I was younger. Um, and I think some of those actually still hold up really well. Um, but I mean, I guess particularly Black Mirror, which tends to be the first show that comes up, um, whenever people talk about science fiction anthology shows now, um, I think is one of those shows that I doesn't quite take advantage of the format as much as I would like in terms of actually experimenting with form and, you know, varying tone. And, you know, plot from episode to episode as much as I would like. Um, so I would say that I like the idea of it, but I haven't always loved the, um, the execution. 
Well, yeah, I, I have to agree with that, that it's that the anthology shows, if I'm being honest, are better in concept than in execution. I mean, so what happens with The Outer Limits is that I watched the, fir the first episode I ever saw was this one with Robert Patrick. He played the T-1000 in uh, Terminator 2, mm -hmm. and it's called Quality of Mercy, and it's great. I love it so much. I would strongly recommend, if anyone can find it, go go watch it now. And so I watched that, and I was like, this show is awesome. And then I watched every other episode of The Outer Limits from the 90s. And they ranged from sort of like okay to pretty lousy. Uh, I never got that. Same what do you one. think of the Sand Kings episode? Uh, I don't think I don't like it that much. And Sand Kings is is arguably my favorite short story of all time. Um, and I think right, that's why I asked. I think the episode, but I thought the episode was is, bad. Is mediocre, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I I can't disagree with with that. That I I, I do I, I guess I do love the idea, you know. But the execution, yeah, is is pretty hit or miss. Almost always. But uh, how about Andrea? You a big science fiction anthology show fan? I was never a huge fan. Um, I feel the same way that uh, in theory, great. In execution, not so great. You know, they, they tend they're, – they're uneven. Some of them are classics, you know, especially from Twilight Zone. Uh, there are classic episodes, but then there is stuff that will never be seen again. Uh, and that's uh, across the board with anthology shows. Um, I, one you didn't bring up that I loved watching when I was a, a kid though was, uh, Amazing Stories. I don't know if anybody else remembers that. Yeah. Um, uh, and I remember one was so funny that I immediately remembered it when I started watching this. It was called Mummy Daddy. It was about this actor who's playing yeah. Mummy. And, yeah. Do you remember it? <laughs> what? Yep. It's hilarious. I, I found it on YouTube too. If you want to see it, go watch it. It's Wait, sorry, terrible quality. Say again, say again what it's about? It's called Mummy Daddy. M-U-M-M-Y. D-A-D-D-Y, Mummy Daddy, about a, a, an actor who plays a mummy in a, in a mummy movie. His wife goes into labor and he doesn't even stop to take his costume off and then gets caught in this insane, you know, his car crashes and then he has to walk through a, um, a small town dressed as a mummy and everybody's trying to shoot him and it's absolutely hilarious. So track that down. Um, Isn't so there a real mummy involved too? I think there is. Yes, there is. <laughs> so it just goes completely haywire. Um, and it made such an impression on me that even to this day, I remember it. So, um, if anybody wants to watch some good stuff, amazing stories, as I recall, was, was wonderful. Um, but I, and I also now have to admit that I've never seen Black Mirror. Everybody talks about it. I have not seen it. So don't kill me. <laughs> Wow. Well, I mean, I never actually watched the Amazing Stories show. I saw the movie, um, but that reminds me. Another one I didn't mention is Tales from the Crypt. Oh and yeah, of course. I, I mm. never, I, I didn't watch a ton of those just because I mean, I would, I watched it whenever it was on, but I, I just never came randomly came across it that often. But I, I probably watched, I don't know, eight or nine of them, um, and 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 liked them. There was one. Uh, it, there's a. It's about a guy who makes puppets. Uh, that sticks out in my mind. I don't, I don't, I don't know what the title is, but that one's great. Um, did that one have Don Rickles in it? I'm not sure. It's, it's, it's a bit, there's, a, there's an older guy and he has a attractive younger wife and he makes puppets, you know, he does puppets with strings and okay. he takes on an apprentice who, uh, is more interested in animatronic kind of stuff. Uh, and he also, he's always talking to the, to one, to his puppet and you don't know whether he's just crazy or whether the puppet is actually talking back. Oh. Um, but that that you one's, never go I, wrong with horror and puppets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, Tom, yeah. it sounds like you're you're pretty into um, anthology shows. 
Uh, hit or miss. I mean, I, I, uh, I like how Anthony likened it to like a relationship. He's like, I don't know if I like anthology shows or I like the idea of them. It's like, I don't know <laughs> if I like being in love or I like the idea of being in love. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I would kind of liken it to wine. It has to, for me, they kind of have to age because you, you've all pointed out that the, um, you know, the quality is up and down. You'll have some stories that are really good and some that are bad. And when you watch a brand new one, I feel like it's the, that it suffers from that. Whereas if they, if you kind of stick them away for a long time and you, you know, you watch reruns of them and especially like Twilight Zone, I love Twilight Zone. I just love the idea of Twilight Zone. Like when I was growing up, when I was a little kid, I would catch it on late TV and it would blow my mind. I mean, this was back in the 1970s. So the, the TV they had back then, you had, you had 12 channels of, uh, you know, everything was very straight-laced and nothing was weird at all. So you you'd suddenly you'd get Twilight Zone and it would, like, blow your mind. But now, if I go back and watch those, there's a few of them that are really good and then most of them are not that good or mediocre or bad. But you don't really remember those ones. They kind of age really right. well in your mind and, you you know, you, yeah. you, 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 you edit out all the bad stuff and you keep all the good stuff. So um, I feel like maybe similar with Amazing Stories, although it's funny you brought that up. I hadn't thought of that, Andrea. But uh, Amazing Stories, when I was a kid, that was like that was like an event. Everybody would talk yep. about it at school. Um, yep. We would be all excited, looking forward to it every Sunday night. And then if it was a if it was a disappointing episode, you'd be like, "Oh, that, that was too <laughs> bad. That one wasn't good." But then that Mummy Daddy one, I remember everybody talking about that one for like yep. all week in school. Yeah, I remember sitting in my living room watching with my family, and all of us were in hysterics. It was so good. Do you remember my my favorite one? The minute you mentioned Amazing Stories, the one that popped into my head. I think this one was actually actually directed by Steven Spielberg because he he was the showrunner, right? Or yep, he was the he was. executive executive producer, producer yeah. yeah, executive producer. And then they had like guest producers and guest writers. Yep. Um, but I think he actually made this one. There was one about a World War II belly gunner. Oh, I've seen yeah. that. That's that amazing. one. Yeah. That was well, so fantastic. Was that the one where it, it, it he draws it? Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Because they sh they sh they shoot the wheels off, and his belly gun turret gets jammed, and he can't right. turn it, and he can't get out of it, and they're going to have to land on the yep. belly with no with no wheels, and, and he's it's going to kill crushed. him. Yeah. And they all they you know they're all they're like, well, we're running out of gas. We're going to have to put this thing down, and it's going to crush you and kill you. But they really want him to live. You know, they they did such a good job making these characters so vivid. And you really yep. love the guy. And uh, he's so passionate about his drawing. He just wants to get home and do cartoons. And he he draws this these wheels, these cartoon wheels yeah. on the plane. And the plane lands, and you're like, oh, he's dead, he's dead. And then you look, and there's like the plane is there, and it's got like these giant cartoon, cartoon wheels. wheels under it. Yep, and, I like, remember it, that. It sounds ridiculous when I tell it now. It sounds absolutely <laughs> ridiculous, but it's giving me chills remembering the actual visuals and how they yeah. did it, how they pulled it off. Like it, you're like, oh my gosh, the power of faith. It's so amazing. Like this yeah. guy just. He believed so hard in this. He drew this beautiful wheels on this plane, and he just like made it happen with his mind. It was like I remember it. it just it, it it was that one still yeah. is. If anybody says amazing stories, that's the first thing that pops into my head is those great big cartoon wheels. Yep, I remember that very Same. well. Yeah. So I I have seen that. So I don't know. I must have just seen it on TV randomly. But there there was an amazing stories movie I remember that had three, and I don't remember what the three were. But um, but yeah, I, I did see that as well. Um, all right, but so before we uh, started recording, a Anthony was saying, is, is, it's not just my imagination that this show, Dimension 404, came out quite a while ago. 
And and it did. It came out back in April 2017. And we're just getting to it now because I just found out about it uh, a week or two ago. It's kind of random. I don't know. Do you guys know um, Antti Milanakis? He used to have a show on MTV. I don't know if any, anyone's heard of this. No, I don't think so. Um, but yeah, so so I went to high school with him. And so his name just popped up on my um, like people to follow on Twitter. And I was like, oh, Antti Milanakis. I wonder what he's up to these days. And so I, I clicked on it and he was just asked. He said, you know, I'm looking for science fiction shows and movies to watch. What's been good in the last year or two? And I was reading through all the suggestions, and one of them was Dimension 404 that a couple of people mentioned. And I was just kind of like, what the heck is Dimension 404? What the heck is that? I've never heard of that. Um, so then I went and watched it. So had had anyone had any of you heard of this show before I emailed you guys about it? I hadn't. No. Um, I think one friend had mentioned it to me briefly, and I was like, eh, I don't know. I'm, I'm not really interested in, in picking up another show right now. And then I forgot about it. Because you do a whole podcast about streaming shows. <laughs> That's right. Although this this predates the the beginning of our podcast, I think. Um, so so <laughs> I can say it's it's not entirely my my fault. Um, but but yeah, I was I was sort of I think when you said it, I vaguely recognized it. But until I like sat down and started watching it, I didn't have that moment of oh, I think I had one conversation, you know, a year or a year and a half ago about this, and then completely forgot about it. Right. So this show, as I said, it appeared on Hulu and it was produced by Rocket Jump. Do you know Anthony? Do you know anything about Rocket Jump? No, not really. Uh, so, uh, Tom or Andrea, do you guys do you guys know anything about Rocket Jump? I hadn't. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll just tell you what I. This is what my research turned up. So uh, it was a couple people from USC. They all met at USC Film School, and sort of the I guess the message that you got at USC was that you should make an independent feature film and try to get it into Sundance. And then if it got picked up at Sundance and you got distributors and stuff, then you would be rich and famous like Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith. <laughs> and, um, and so these people were all kind of like, huh, not, this doesn't really seem to be happening very often. And this was around the time that YouTube was, was sort of getting going. So they just started making funny videos for YouTube instead and I guess it became really, really popular. Um, they have something called Rocket Jump Film School, where it's sort of, you know, like short videos teaching you how to make your own movies so you don't have to pay to go to film school. Um, and then they did a dramatic thing um, called Video Game High School, which I've, I've heard of. I haven't watched. Oh, yeah. Um, but apparently they were in talks with, uh, I guess, uh, Anthony, do you know, have you ever seen Video Game High School? I, I haven't watched Again, same as you. I'm familiar with it, um, and it seemed to sort of make at least a little bit of a splash um, when it came out, but uh, I didn't watch it. I mean, it, a, a lot of that content, I think it feels like it's something that I could be interested in, but is a slightly different demographic than, than I'm not like necessarily squarely in their target audience, so I haven't prioritized it. Well, it was funny because, you know, it was a couple different people, and, and one of them, or two of them, I think, were having a conversation. This is, I just listened to some interviews, and there was a lot of stuff, so I apologize if I have any of these facts wrong. But they're having a conversation and basically saying, like, what would be the most pandering, you know, like, cynical <laughs> sort of title for a show we could possibly come up with? And they're like, Video Game High School. And then they mentioned that to another one of the people and was like, oh, I would actually be totally you know, legitimately, sincerely interested in doing that. And so that's kind of how that got started. Um, but I guess they had been sort of talking to people at Lionsgate and the people at Lionsgate were sort of like, we like what you're doing with YouTube, but we can't really do anything with, you know, four minute videos, whatever. Um, but if you do something longer as sort of a proof of concept, then we might be interested in striking a deal with you down the road. And so that was, I, I think, sort of the the genesis of Video Game High School. 
And then that went well enough that they actually struck a deal with them to do Dimension 404. Uh, and obviously they're all big fans of Twilight Zone and Outer Limits. Um, the, uh, the intro to this show is like really, really strongly an homage to, oh, to yeah. Outer Limits uh, in particular. Um, where it's like, we've taken over your TV, don't change the channel, you know, you're gonna, you're, we're about to blow your minds kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, first, my first impression right there was, oh, Twilight Zone. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, well, actually, so speaking of uh, first impressions, Andrea, why don't you tell us about your first impressions of this show? Uh, the first episode is called Matchmaker. And yeah. there's a, a guy and he's uh, sort of, a, I think he's in his 20s and he's, um, you know, having trouble finding a girlfriend. And so he gets on an, a new app that's supposed to match you with your, your perfect match. And it, it seems to work just fine. But then after a couple months, he gets dumped uh, by his, <laughs> his girlfriend and discovers that he's, well, maybe I'm getting, uh, maybe let's, let's stop there. What, what did you think? Uh, what were your first impressions of this, uh, of this episode? So just of the first one, you're saying, not overall? Yeah, just well, you watched the first episode first, I, right? I, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I watched them in order. Um, okay, well, um, my first impression was, why is this lit so brightly? <laughs> and I, I think I was coming at it, you know, from a production point of view, like a, a, a producer production point of view. It all looked like it was shot on for green screen because it was so lit. And and I think that I, and I'm sorry if I'm getting like really technical. I'm not talking. Well, about Well, let me mention. So Andrea has been to actual film school, not like YouTube yeah. film school. So <laughs> right. yeah, in fact, that is true. Um, although I endorse uh, uh, YouTube film school, to be honest with you, um, personally. Uh, you know, NYU film school, too expensive. But I, but I talked about that in another episode. Um, so I just want to make sure that you burn bridges in every. Yeah, no, no. That's, that's what I'm here for. (laughs) Specifically to burn bridges. Um, it's it's sort of my brand, actually. (laughs) Um, so yeah, so my first impression was, boy, is this overlit. And I kept waiting for some kind of reason for it to be that way, but it never really materialized. Um, so I, I was just a little confused by that. And then the overall story, my my first thought was, this is like written by college students. <laughs> it was written and shot like a bunch of college students did it. You know, it was a decent effort, but a decent effort for college students and not for general filmmakers. So... You know, my first impression of the of it overall by watching the first episode was, yeah, if I hadn't had to watch this whole thing, I probably wouldn't continue from here. Um, and also, just as a as a writerly note, why would they ever keep them alive and only give them the option to kill themselves? I just thought that was very strange. Having uh, just a bunch of people sitting in a room, all looking alike, talking, eating it, that that was just. You know, from a plot point of view, it didn't seem to make sense. All right. Well, I guess I have to explain that, that then. So, yeah. So the, the guy, he, he discovers that, um, that, that this, this, uh, his girlfriend that he's been dating actually used this service to have him created. He's some sort of synthetic person. Um, and she, she specified all of his characteristics. And that's why they're such a perfect match is because he was literally created for, for her. Um, so Tom, what did you, what did you think? Did you think this was overlit? Well, I was really concerned with the focus pulling. I thought that, <laughs> <they are. laughs> 
No, I, I've never been to. I think I drove by NYU Film School. <laughs> I actually had a video production business for years, but I did like weddings and corporate video. I, I don't know anything about lighting or uh, or anything like that. I uh, so I didn't really think about that much. Um, I did like the Twilight Zone aesthetic right off. I was like, oh, cool, it's going to be like Twilight Zone. And I did for some reason I didn't even think of Outer Limits, although I was a big fan of Outer Limits as well. Um, and I liked that they had, uh, you know, Luke Skywalker as the Rod Serling oh, yeah. narrator, but, but he, I don't know, he had kind of like a weird aspect to his voice where you couldn't really, you couldn't really pick him out or tell it was him. So I was like, that's interesting. But, um, but I, I liked the show. I, I liked this episode. Um, I agree with Andrea. I had some issues with the plot that I kind of had to use my superpower of saying, well, I'm just not going to think about that part because I'm going to try <laughs> to enjoy the rest of it. Um, but I thought it was very, uh, very reminiscent of Sheckley, Robert Sheckley stories or Philip K. Dick. Um, it really reminds you, know, you asked if I was a fan of anthology shows. I, I am to a great extent also anthology movies, like a couple others you didn't mention. One was, uh, Tales from, oh, you mentioned Tales from the Crypt, but Creepshow. Um, oh, yeah. Creepshow. There, there was another one called Trilogy of Terror that I watched when I was a kid that made a big impression on me. Was that, that the 1960s you know, one? I think so. It's got it's the one with the uh, the tiki doll or whatever it's called. The yeah, some, something doll. There, there's three stories, right? And this this yes. was this was what I was thinking of when you said Do you like anthology uh, anthology shows. I like that there's always like one that you're always going to remember, and then that there's two or three other ones that you're just going to be like, yeah, I don't really remember. And later on, you remember the show <laughs> and you think of that one because like my friends and I who are now um, you know one of one of us is in our 50s, the other two are in our 40s late 40s any one of us now if we see something with big teeth we'll go trilogy we'll just say that and that means trilogy of terror we all know what that means because it has nothing to do with the other two stories in that in that trilogy because i don't even remember what they were but i will never forget this little doll with these giant teeth climbing out of this woman's bathtub and like running around her apartment with a spear and trying to kill her that was um, karen black wasn't it was it karen black the actress you're right you're right. I never would have thought of that unless you said it. Yeah, you're right. Okay, so so getting back to Dimension 404 for a second. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So so there was a point. There was a reason this related. So Dimension 404, um, you know, I, I, I feel like this one was – it, it kind of reminded me – made me think more of how much I like anthology uh, short fiction rather than anthology TV shows. And this in particular seemed like very similar to a, a Robert Sheckley story. In fact, you know, the fact – I think you explained the plot, didn't you, Dave, already? Uh, yeah, well, I explained that he was made for her. I guess I should have explained what Andrea was talking about, about how it turns out that after you get dumped, uh, they sort of warehouse you in this uh, like little, I don't know, college dorm kind of place uh, where you, you can basically stay there forever or you can get disintegrated. Um, yeah, yeah, because I thought that was really cool. I thought it was neat how you know it starts out, he's trying out this dating service and his buddy, his roommate is like, look, this dating service, they actually create, like, they, they put you with your perfect person. And he's like, oh, great. And he tries it out, and he's like, wow, that's, it really works. It really is my perfect person. But then it turns out that he's not the perfect person for her. And not only that, but he's been created to be her perfect person, and it didn't work. So now he's a he's got to go back to the returns department, which I thought was hilarious. Um, and I thought there was a lot of really good humor that just kind of grew out of the story that wasn't, they weren't, like, it was just like, well, what if we treated this situation as serious and what would it be like? There was a lot of funny stuff in it. Um, 
It's very similar to a Robert Sheckley story called Pilgrimage to Earth. From This is from the 60s. It was in Playboy magazine originally. This young guy from another planet goes back to the home, the home world, which is Earth. And, uh, you know, on Earth you can get anything. And he goes back there to find love because he hears that Earth is, you can actually buy love on Earth. And he goes, he says, this is ridiculous, it's not going to work, but he, you know, he wants to figure it out for himself. So he goes there and, um, goes to Earth and, and actually gets love. You know, he goes into this place and he's like talking to the salesman. And he's like, you can't really, you can't really create love. And the guy's like, oh, yes, we can. And he's like, look, this isn't like a prostitution thing, is it? Cause I didn't travel all this way. The guy goes, no, 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 this has nothing to do with prostitution. It turns out they actually, they, they, took this woman who was down on her luck and they created this love for him in her mind. And then he's in love with her and it lasts about a night. And then she goes back to the company and he still wants it to go on. And the guy goes, no, 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 we don't create lifelong love. It's, <laughs> it's like, you just get to, you know, get to experience it, but that would be immoral. And, uh, <laughs> so he gets really angry and there's all this other funny stuff in the story. But it, at first I thought this one was going that way. And then I thought it was a really cool twist that they made him, the created one and like what happens to him, you know, when it doesn't work out, when, the, when, the, when he gets rejected, when he, when he goes to back to the returns department, I thought that was fantastic. I really actually very much enjoyed this, this episode. I thought there was some funny parts in it. Like when the, uh, I don't know, there's one point where the, the guy says only because I'm incredibly desperate and his friend says, that's the spirit. <laughs> I thought that was great. And then that, and then when the evil guy says cows don't leave the slaughterhouse, steaks do. I thought that was pretty clever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, well, so, yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with you, Tom, that I, I really liked the twist where he turns out to be the one who was created for her. Uh, I agree to an extent with what Andrew was saying, that it, it feels like it does feel sort of like a student film at some parts. So, so as it develops, he eventually leads this uprising against the center where they're all prisoners. And that part totally fell flat for me. That totally felt like, you know, like like a student film, kids fooling around with a camera sort of mm -hmm. thing. Um, and then like it develops that, you know, and then, and then af af afterward he's out, you know, he's, he's sort of free. He has a band with his five clones or whatever, which actually I really liked that. Um, but, um, and then he, he, he runs into the, the girlfriends again and then they have a conversation where it, I thought it was ambiguous whether this, this was making the point that now he's over her and he's moved on and that's good. Or like, they're going to get back together. I didn't like, I, I thought it should have been way clearer that like he's, he's over her. He's not getting back together with this person who's been warehousing multiple versions of him um but so over but overall i, I liked the episode okay um but how about anthony what were your do you agree with what what other people have said yeah i would say i was more on the um on the positive side that uh and and, and partly because i thought this episode and um impulse the final episode of the season they both had this similar structure where they took what felt to me sort of like a kind of more black mirror-esque idea that it was sort of this, you know, our contemporary times, but just more so idea. And then it, but it burned through that whole story in like 10 or 15 minutes. And then it got much crazier. And I think to some extent that lessens the impact of a lot of what happens later because you don't sort of take it as seriously. You don't take it as like a, you know, like, like a, they don't take, they're not like three-dimensional characters, but as just sort of like a romp, I liked it. And I thought also like in terms of the overlit, I, I mean, that wasn't necessarily what I thought, but I, I had the thought that it, it looked, um, I mean, this is sort of a simplification, but it sort of looked sitcom-y compared to like a more kind of prestige TV look. But that actually felt right for the, particularly for this episode, because 
it, I, it was trying to set this very absurdist tone because it certainly, I think if you start thinking about, you know, the economics of this company, very little about it makes any sense. But if you look at it more as just sort of this kind of absurdist treatment of dating, then I think it's, it's kind of a, a fun ride. Well, that's a really good point is that, you know, the, the, particularly the Twilight Zone is known for having twist endings. Um, but a lot of, you know, anthology shows lean on that device. And I think it's yeah. a, that's a really interesting and sort of valid observation that this show, they put the twist ending like a third of the way into the show and then carry on the story from there, which I think is really, you know, uh, a, a really good take on, on this sort of uh, show. Um, so, a- Andrea, any other thoughts? Yeah, actually, I want to add that people – you sold it to me, Dave, as this is a comedy show. Um, so I went into it waiting to laugh. And and I will, you know, preface this by saying I spent most of my career working in comedy. And, I, and I'm a hard get for a good laugh. So I'm watching this and I'm waiting for – to laugh and nothing. Like none of it was – it never – I never laughed out loud. Um, so I think also that, you know, played into my, um, feelings about this where I was completely disappointed. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I, I, you gave me this expectation of it being funny and, and it, for me, it wasn't. So, well, well, um, right. So I just, I described it as a more humorous black mirror. Right. Do, do you feel like that's not a, an accurate description of the show? I, I think that was their intention. But their execution <laughs> was not, or at least in this, their execution was not what I was uh, hoping for. But once again, I will say that I'm, I'm a, I'm a hard uh, get on a laugh. You know. Are you saying for this episode you didn't laugh, or you didn't laugh for, at the whole show? For this episode. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, yeah, I, I thought it was like, you know, I thought it was sort of okay. You know, I thought it was. I mean, I, I wasn't totally sold on the show after this episode. No. Um, but so, yeah, but I mean, that's, let's, let's, let's move on then to our, to episode number two. Okay. So this is called Cinethrax and there it's a uh, Patton Oswalt is an aging film snob and he <laughs> wears a t-shirt, um, from, you know, of, of one of the alien overlords from They Live, uh, which is about, you know, a, a guy discover he, 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 this, this, this normal guy comes across these glasses and when he puts them on, they allow him to see the world as it really is. And, and so he sees that actually aliens have taken over and, and nobody knows it, that everyone's sort of hypnotized into a stupefied consumerist slumber. Um, and that's, that theme is going to come back in this episode. That's not just a random t-shirt he happens to be wearing. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so he has, uh, these glasses. Actually, I don't, shifters, they're, they're, they're called, um, where they yeah. allow you to, yeah, I think that's right. They allow you to, to go to a 3D movie and, and watch it in 2D. Uh, I don't know if this is a real thing or not, but, uh, I definitely want to get some of those if it's a real thing. <laughs> um, b- because this, this Patton Oswalt character, like, I, I felt a, an enormous amount of affinity with him. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, but so, so anyway, so he, he frequently goes to movies with his niece. And, uh, and they, and they go, usually go see movies that he wants to see, which are older movies, sort of classics in his mind. Although we gather they're all sort of like B movie kind of classics. Um, but so she wants to go see the new, like, um, Hunger Games, uh, uh, yeah. yeah, what's the, what's the other one? The, um, uh, uh, Divergent. Divergent. I think that seems to be closer to Divergent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's that kind of, kind of sort of com- very commercial, tr- you know, movie after movie 
kind of YA science fiction sort of thing. And, uh, and so, so, she, so he gets dragged along to this and he's totally not into it. And she wants to hang out now with her, her friends. And there's like this hot guy who's the manager, the young manager of the movie theater that she's sort of, uh, fording with. Um, and so how about, um, so Andrea, what did you, what did you think of, uh, of Sinneth Rax? Okay. So <laughs> this is the part of the program where I not just burn the bridge, I, I completely nuke it and probably the rest of the world, including my career. Um, <laughs> I, I like where this is going. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I hated this so much that I was actually screaming what the fuck through the entire thing. Um, here's the, I love Patton Oswalt. He, and he's good in this. He, he's being him. I love Patton Oswalt. Forgive me, Patton. You're a lovely man. You're a great actor. I love you. But this is possibly one of the worst things I've ever watched this episode. I, it's like 10 minutes of plot packed into a 42-minute Peter Jackson Hobbit uh, epic. Nothing happens for the 20 minutes. I I'm, And I started, you know, pausing it to see where we were 20 minutes before the actual plot started. Everything else is filler and they're having conversations and they're talking about emojis and pretty much none of it really matters to the actual plot. And I, it was making me so angry that I was, I was, Putting my, I can't express how angry I was at this. Um, I, I'm looking at my notes right now and there's literally WTF all over it. Um, <laughs> how could you possibly make this so bad? How could you get such good talent as Sarah Hyland and Pat Oswalt and then completely blow it? I, honest to God, Dave, at the end of this, I was like this close to, to emailing you and saying, I can't do this. Because if the, I not only couldn't, I I couldn't imagine myself watching the rest of it. I couldn't imagine getting anywhere and putting my, you know, putting my opinion on this out there because I, I mean, let's face it, I've already burned so many bridges. It doesn't even matter, but I didn't really want to nuke anything, but here I am nuking it because you've asked me my opinion. But yeah, this is, (laughs) I was, I was angry. I was, I was angry. And I'm still angry about it that I spent 42 minutes of my life. It so, was so excruciating. So you didn't like it? Um, <laughs> I well, you know what gave you that idea? Um, what? Because I, I actually, I actually, I actually kind of like this. I mean, because uh, oh. yeah, like I said, I, I identified with Patton Oswalt. I, I was just like, you know, because they have this sort of like par- like I said, the parody movie that they're watching. I thought was pretty funny. Oh no, um, that was it, yeah that that was interesting. But at that point, I was so an- annoyed that this here we are at the plot, and it's now been twenty minutes in, twenty minutes in before. Right, the well, does anyone episode. does anyone want to back me up that they they kind of liked this episode? No, but I want to I ask guess- Andrea what what made you so angry? The fact that they were that the scenes were ten minutes long. It was like watching an old movie where all the scenes are, are 10 minutes long and they never cut. It was, yeah. it, you know, that's not what modern films that, you know, and, and because I've done this for a long time and, and I've written a bunch of screenplays, you're, you're lo- the longest a, a scene should be in a screenplay is like three minutes, three pages, three minutes. These scenes were like 
five minutes, six minutes, seven minutes, and it was excruciating. And none of it really pertained to the plot. And I'm just sitting there going, get on with it. Just get on with it for God's sakes. Yeah. So okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. So Tom, you 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 you, you didn't you hated it too. Well, I, like don't I, I think don't what don't like go like uh, belabor the point. But I mean, you didn't you didn't <laughs> like it. <laughs> no, no, I didn't like it. I, I didn't I didn't hate it. I I wouldn't say you know I think hate's a pretty strong word, but I did feel that it didn't really know whether it wanted to be Twilight Zone, They Live, Die Hard, or Evil Dead Two. Um, it it just seemed like it was kind of a mishmash. I I really didn't like the. The whole setup, I thought the casting felt, I, I don't know much about Patton Oswalt, but I felt the casting felt off to me in the beginning. I thought I was very annoyed by both the actors, although I did, like you, Dave, I thought, you know, he's he's a good, uh, I, I identified with him too. You know, the whole like going into the movie and wanting everything to be kind of the way it was. And I, I definitely, I'm crusty and old, so I, I identified with that. But I thought the pacing was very slow at first. Um uh, you know, I, I, also, I also think anthologies often put their best story first. I know that Mike Resnick told me that specifically, mm-hmm. and they put the weaker ones second and third and so on. Absolutely. Um, and I, but I did think it was genuinely creepy when the tentacle first came out of the screen. That, that was really a creepy moment that I felt. Um, and there were a couple funny moments, like when Patton Oswalt says to the manager, he says, can I talk to an adult? And he says, he says, well, I am an adult. And he says, no, can I talk to the manager? And he says, well, I am the manager. And he says, what are we, a Narnia? Pretty, <laughs> I got a good laugh out of that. But apart, but from also that, like no, the, the manager and all the super pretentious, uh, you know, theater employees. And they're all they're like, you haven't seen Melies and the stuff. Like, <laughs> no, that, all right, I agree that 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 particular part was funny. Yeah. Uh, Anthony, what do you think? Well, so uh, the one thing I would disagree with strongly in, in terms of what Tom said was just like I I, I thought Pat and Oswalt was perfect casting, and I thought and I think like basically the episode. What I do agree with is like there's the plot is felt like nothing, and it was like very perfunctory, and and like Andrea was saying, like you know like ten minutes at best of plot stretched to you know uh, stretched to like forty minutes, and and so it definitely got tedious as it went on, but I thought that. The Patton Oswalt character, where Patton Oswalt is basically playing himself, mm-hmm. yeah. that I think that I think the episode basically like you know um, works or doesn't work based on <laughs> how interested you are in that character, and and so I actually had the opposite opposite experience where my favorite part of the episode was all the setup that had nothing to do with the alien plot because it was just <laughs> hanging out with this character, and then as soon as the alien stuff came in, I agree that like. I would, you know, surprisingly, the first view of it, um, was relatively effective. But after that, it just got very kind of dumb, um, pr- pretty quickly. So I, I just, yeah, I basically liked the Patton Oswalt performance. I liked the, the parody movie that they, <laughs> that they kept cutting away to. I thought that was pretty well done. Um, and then one other thing I thought was sort of tone deaf about it was th- given that it's trying to place this sort of like generation gap at the center of the movie is that I think, there are very few contemporary American teenagers who give a shit about movie theaters at all. Mm. And so the idea that like, they're all going to go see this movie and like get really excited about this new format, um, felt like kind of wrong that like, in fact, like the whole, just even getting her to a movie theater nowadays would be a huge effort. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's a really interesting observation. I mean, I'll, I'll just say, I mean, one of the things I like about anthologies is that, like, just anything can happen. And so I, I, I like the fact that, 
you know, the whole world can be taken over by aliens by the end of one episode. And then, you know, yeah. like, th- like those sorts of massive, you know, twists or whatever can happen. Um, I did th- like, I agree with you guys that, I mean, in, in the introduction to the show that Mark Hamill reads, he says something about, um, you know, like stories unlike any you've ever seen before or something like that. And and that's not really true of this show. And it's particularly not true of this episode specifically. Like you've seen this story a million times before um, where like the aliens are taking over people. And um, even like in, it's, it's even been parodied a million times like that. That Simon Pegg movie, The World's End, was was pretty similar, you know, to this. But I don't know. I, 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 enjoy, I, I like like uh, Anthony was saying, I kind of just enjoyed the um the Patton Oswald character and, he, and he's saying you know you you uh appreciate this episode in proportion to how much you appreciate that character and since that character was like so much like me I guess I appreciated the, the episode but more here, but here's the thing I, that character's like me too like you know me I'm grouchy <laughs> as hell and and I will go on and on about millennials goddamn you kids get off my lawn but it just at it was so belabored and I'm not saying this is Patton Oswald's fault <laughs> Um, I just thought the the script let him down, um, and that was really I, I thought it was just a waste of a great talent, and and it was that was a lot of the reason that I was so angry with it. Also, I just want to make the point that they talk about the generation gap between you know forty year olds and millennials. She seemed like a teenager, and and millennial teenagers are not millennials. Teenager millennial starts at like twenty three, twenty four, and so I <laughs> right. was a little, I was like that didn't gel with me in my mind you know teenagers are not millennials so that's a minor yeah, point I think that speaks maybe, again to it maybe the story the, was something about the approach was a little yeah yeah maybe they wrote it six years ago yeah yeah true uh all right did anyone like episode three chronos uh, i actually did not not because i thought it Again, like it's, it's kind of similar, I think, to a lot of these where as soon as you start thinking about it from like a world building perspective, it falls down very quickly. But just because I thought the, um, the core dilemma of (laughs) this, uh, the, the main character, Susan, who, so she's a college student who's supposed to turn in her final paper. Um, but she hasn't even started it yet. And, you know, the hours are ticking down and, and basically it's sort of implied that a lot of her academic career has basically been, you know, burned up watching bad television. And, and that dilemma felt so <laughs> real to me and oh, so yeah. close to home. And that where they took it emotionally, I thought was, was interesting. Um, and, and I guess particularly in this one where the, the kind of, um, the more fantastical elements are so obviously silly, um, that, that I didn't mind that, like, it didn't really make a lot of sense. Um, but, but, you know, especially having this villain called Lord Entropy, I just thought it's like a great name for the villain of a time travel story. Yeah. And, and so there were like little touches like that, that, that I liked. Um, so I, I wasn't crazy about the ending, which maybe we can talk a little bit about later, but like, I would say overall, I, I, again, you know, basically it came down to sort of the, the character stuff worked for me and the, I guess the the sort of homage to to '90s television felt, um, you know, like like affectionate and real enough that that I, that I that I liked it. Yeah. So let me just explain. So so there's yeah you have this college student and she's supposed to turn in her term paper that night or else she's going to flunk out. Um, but she has just been watching this cartoon about a time traveling superhero her whole life rather than doing her homework. But then uh, the time, and so she has a friend who comes over who I, I thought was absolutely like everything that guy said made me laugh. I, I, yep. I like that yeah, guy. Yeah, I agree. I, 
totally. Um, I'll just I'll just highlight one one line. So um, so she says like what smells, and and her friend kind of like sniffs his his armpit, and and he's like, uh, m- maybe you're having a stroke. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 yeah, that, yeah, but that that I love that guy. Uh, his yep. name is Alex, the character. But so yeah, so they're hanging out. Great. And um, and then the her the the time traveling superhero from her cartoon appears in real life, and there's this whole plot involving him and his and the villain, and there there's all sorts of time loops. And I think that the big uh, strength of this episode to me is that it's funny. I was I was like laughing pretty consistently through the whole thing. And the big weaknesses of this episode, as Anthony was alluding to, is that the time travel stuff I don't think makes any sense at all. And I, I mean, granted, like time travel stuff almost never makes sense, but in particularly like significant ways, the time travel stuff doesn't seem to make sense in this episode. Well, and I don't think it's it's self consistent either, which I I think like because yeah, time travel generally doesn't. It's sort of all the rules are sort of arbitrary, but as long as you sort of set up rules and stick to those rules, I people will go with it. But when it feels like the rules are sort of changing every ten minutes, then it, it's sort of harder to feel invested. Right. So, Tom, what'd you think of this episode? Well, I agree. Just what Anthony just said and what the point you just made. I didn't understand. Why couldn't people see them when they were like, if you went, if they went back in time to a time before their time, it was kind of like they were in, uh, the Scrooge story. They were, you know, they, the people who were living in that time couldn't see them some of the time and some of the time they could. So I didn't understand what yeah. was going on. No, there, there is a line where he says, like, you're the, the, um, captain or what's his name? Uh, time rider. He says something. The first time they do it, he's like, you're, you're like synced to my chrono wristband, whatever, and people won't be able to see you in the past. Uh, I agree with you. I don't know if it was vital, vital. I don't know. I don't know if it was actually consistent fully through the episode, but it, it, there was a line explaining it. Okay. Okay. But I, I, overall, I, I agree with you. I think it was funny. I thought the plot was really lame. Um, it reminded me of kind of a little bit of a knockoff of one of the scenes in Bill and Ted's when they have the Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, where they have like the he's like, remember a trash can, and then the trash can appears, and then they, you know, they keep going back and stuff. Except not done as well. But I thought it was, I thought that Kapoor guy, Alex Kapoor, was uh, he was hilarious. Like you said, every single thing he said was awesome, and his delivery was great. I thought. Um, I like when when Time Rider says he makes a point, and Time Rider goes, no, no, Sue's less important friend is right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, but I thought the ending. W- I actually um, I actually thought the ending wasn't bad. Um, I actually thought the ending was was pretty cool and satisfying that she, you know, she ended up having to uh, having to go through and and do her own thing without without Time Rider there to help her. I thought that was that was kind of good. Okay, but see, Tom, I have two problems with the ending, and one is that it's established very explicitly that they can only return to the time that they left. It seems to me, which would be like you know midnight or like whatever um and then it, well that, that it's this moving target of the present is moving ahead as yes. you right. are in the past right. right and so that doesn't seem like even as we're saying even by the standards of time travel stories that seems to totally not work to me um but then the other thing is it seems like just on a dramatic level it's like it seems it's we're at the the we're in the belly of the beast the darkest hour where it seems like all is lost and um lord entropy has has won and everything's ruined and then literally like one scene later, everything is okay. And it didn't seem like that was earned emotionally at all. Okay. Well, I guess uh, 
I guess, yeah, I agree that 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 didn't work logically. But once I decided the plot was lame, I just I just kind of threw that out the window. But I I guess I meant that it was satisfying emotionally to me that she she I I didn't mind that things worked out. I didn't think things a hundred percent worked out because Time Rider was gone, right? He was he was no more because uh, she wrecked it. But now she's her own person at least, and she's not. I thought emotionally, I liked I I thought it was satisfying that she went from this person who just watched TV all the time and put everything off and procrastinated everything to somebody who just realized that she had her own, her own destiny and her own power. And, uh, and she needed to get up and act for herself. I, I like that theme, even though, like you said, the plot doesn't make any sense. And, no, I, I agree that the last scene is a fine last scene. I just feel like there needs to be like three or four more scenes leading up to that to, to, to make it feel earned and to justify it. Um, yeah, but so, so, so Andrea, what did, what did you think of this episode? Well, this was the one that was make or break for me. If if I hated it, I was I was definitely going to email you and say I'm out. But um so I didn't love it. I didn't think it was great. I thought the pacing was still not great. But there was th- this was the one that actually the first time I actually laughed out loud at anything. Um th- and it was the the guy, what was his name? Alex Kapoor. Um, mm-hmm. where yep. they're, where they land on the bed and she lands on top of him and he goes, wait, we need to stay here where it's safe on the bed. And then she gets up and he puts the pillow over his crotch. <laughs> oh, that was awesome. Absolutely laughed out loud. And then there was another great line where, where he's, I don't know, they're in the, the office and he goes something, something. And I, cause I'm just the plus one here, which I thought was another <laughs> great, great line. So he was the thing that absolutely won me over for this. Uh, I agree the time travel thing, just I didn't follow at all. But again, um, I just gave up on trying to figure it out and just, you know, let it ride, uh, so that I can just, you know, but I didn't understand the time travel at all. Not that I ever would in any case, but. <laughs> Um, well, well, I think what's particularly confusing about the time travel is that there's this mem- – it's called a mem razor or something. And it seems to be something that you point at people's heads and erase their memories. Right. And that I, I, I got. But then like very quickly, there's a part where the Lord Entropy is like pointing the, at the toys on the bookshelf and making them disappear from existence. And so then it's like you're erasing those from existence. So then everybody in the world doesn't remember them anymore. But then like she still remembers them. But then like why does he need to travel back in time if it just erases stuff retroactively through time? Yeah. And and that was like where I didn't even like I sort of like just moved, like brushed over that on my first viewing. And on the second viewing, I'm like, all right, this is just confusing the hell out of me. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. Um. Anthony, what do you think? No, I agree that, it, and I guess the one other thing I would say about the ending is in terms of like, that it, it feels very representative of the show that like, it feels like it's meant to, to, you're meant to see it as a happy ending because it ends in a good place for her, even though this whole, you know, structure of this futuristic time travel society has been erased from time and you're meant to feel sad about it for 10 seconds and then move on and then you know be in bad just feel like it's good because it's a good emotional place for her which i was okay about but it didn't completely work for me um yeah and, and in general i would say this this show is is a very kind of hand wavy show which i don't really have a problem with but I mean, and I mean by this show, I mean the the show as a whole. And then Kronos, I think, is the most hand wavy of all of the episodes, where you just kind of there's a lot of stuff where you're just like, all right, I guess I'm supposed to just go with that. Um, and and I think at a certain point, you know, my willingness to go along started to fade a little bit. 
Yeah. So, so yeah, like I said, the, the time travel doesn't make sense, but the show is really funny. So I would recommend it just on that basis. Just like talking about the Alex guy. I'm just remembering the com- and, and time travel not making sense. Just the part he's having the conversation with the, the guy at the cartoon um, production company, whatever. And then and, and the guy says, do you know how time travel works? And he's like, what? And he's like, no, I'm wedding. I'm wedding. your what? What did you, what do you mean? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I, I don't. Know, I don't know if I've ever seen that actor before, but he was so good in this. Yeah. I I would yeah. watch something else just just knowing he was in it. Yeah, absolutely. Um. <laughs> all right. So so I'm glad, and I'm glad the episode was good enough not to make Andrea totally drop yeah. out of the panel. Yeah. <laughs> um. All right. So then we get to episode four. It's called Polybius. So uh, how about Tom? What'd you think of? Uh, let, me, let me explain. So so there's a um. There's a, a bullied high school student, and his only uh, sort of escape. <laughs> what's yeah? What's the word? His yeah. His only escape is uh, going to the local arcade where he has a crush on the cute guy who works there, and uh, and this this main character he dreams of being a video game review, like professional video game reviewer. And one day, a ple- uh, an arcade machine called Polybius shows up, and it's unlike anyone. Anything anyone has ever seen, and, and things get get spooky from there. Uh, so, Tom, what do you think of this episode? This episode really bothered me, and not because it was bad, because I don't think it was. I think it was well done, but it bothered me because it was so derivative of uh, of something from a video anthology that I really loved when I was a kid, and still stuck with me. Um, and I'm sure there's no way that this is not just a remake of it. There's a 1983. Emilio Estevez, well, it's a, it's a video trilogy, uh, called Nightmares from 1983. And there's a story in it that is exactly like this one, except there's no love interest in it. And it's right down to the details of how the maze game looked, but it's done cooler. The original one is cooler. Um, not just because I remember it from my childhood, but because, uh, the way they did it, it, it had such a solid story. And it was, uh, you know, it had this, first of all, it had the same game. It's, it was, it was cooler in, in the original because it started out, um, the theme in the original was, was kind of video game addiction. This, this kid played by Emilio Estevez wants to go in and, and play this video game, much like the, the Polybius one. And he starts playing it and he's, you know, he's getting into it, but it's like a Pac-Man maze style game, but it's round, seen from above, and looks very much like the Polybius one. Um, and he, and as he plays it, there's 13 levels. And as he plays through the levels, the uh, the point of view starts to tilt. So instead of looking straight down at this 3D at this at this 2D maze, it starts to tilt. So you're looking in from an angle, if you can imagine that. And then as he gets to like level five, he's like down, like looking from really a really low view. So it's more uh, it's more realistic looking. And when he gets to you know it's 13 levels, when he gets to level 12, he's actually like it's actually a maze style game from inside the maze, just like just like Polybius, which was a cool progression to me that they left out of this story, which I was like, you know, if you're going to do an homage, don't make it worse. Um, but so, so on level 12, he's like right inside, it's a maze style game and he's playing that. And there's, there's actually enemies in the maze that he had to shoot, which bothered me about Polybius because there was, it wasn't really much of a game to the game. Like the, you, you saw like, oh, this kid's playing a game, but he wasn't really actually, he's just like going through this maze and there's something chasing him, you think, but kind of hard to tell. But in the Bishop of Battle, which is the name of the story in the Nightmares from 1983, it was called Bishop of Battle. The video game was called Bishop of Battle. 
and he's shooting all these little things. And you could actually, yeah, the game actually looked fun. Like if it was a real game, you're like, oh, I could actually play that. And then at the end of the, of the Bishop of Battle episode, he get, he finally makes it through to level 13. And at that point, the game collapses and all of the characters from the game come out and he's still got like the gun from the game console in his hand and he's like shooting at these things in the arcade. He's blowing up the other arcade games. And it was so cool. I remember like really loving it when I was a kid. And then he ends up losing like barely, but he loses. And then he gets sucked into the game at the end and he's like part of the game now. And it was so similar to this. And I loved that so much when I was a kid that this episode bothered me, even though I think it was pretty well done, but it's just hard for me to tell because I couldn't think around that block. Uh, that sounds pretty cool. I really like that idea that it starts out third person and transitions to first person in increments like that. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, that was that was super fun. Uh, Andrea, what did you think of Polybius? Well, I thought it was the best um, uh, of the four so far. Uh, and and once I watched it and and I got into it, I thought it you know clearly more serious than the other three. But I thought it was well written. It moved really well. I thought the actors were great. Um, I thought the plot was great. Uh, so I was overall very happy, uh, once I got to this place. And, but at that point, I was like, why would they have led with those, with their three weakest ones? And especially the first <laughs> two. I was very confused by that, but whatever. But I really got into this. I thought it was great. I was a little thrown off because of, uh, Polybius is actually a Greek historian. So the minute I saw that, I'm like, oh, this is going in the direction of some kind of Greek thing. Um, you know, and that's my classics, uh, all my classics classes from college, um, kicking in. Um, but you know, it didn't go that way. It, uh, it went in a great direction, but overall, I thought it was a terrific episode and it was great to see Adrian Barbeau, uh, again. And also just because it was set in the eighties in arcade, boy, did I connect with that? Um, cause I spent some time in arcades in the, in the eighties as I, I was that, I was those kids. I was that, you know, that nerdy kid. Um, so it, it really actually hit me on a personal level, uh, this one. Well, let me say about the name Polybius. So this is actually, there's, there's this urban legend about this game called Polybius, which people claim to have played, um, but no one can like find evidence of it, uh, that drove people crazy and that there were weird men in black sort of lurking around. Is this um, an actual urban legend? This isn't a part of the show? No, this is an actual urban legend. Oh. I never oh. know. Oh, wow. Um, so actually, if you're, if you want to know more, there's actually a really good YouTube video called Polybius, the video game that doesn't exist by Ahoy is the name of the channel, A-H-O-Y. And huh. it goes through the whole thing, including his very, what seems like to be a, a pretty strong theory for how this originated, how this, you know, how, who, who originated as it as a hoax, basically. Um, but yeah, it is, it is, I had heard of it, you know, um, you know, when, when, the, when in the show, when it pops up with Polybius, you know, I, I paused it and told my girlfriend, it's like, oh, yeah, do you know this Polybius? It's this urban legend about this game that drives you crazy and stuff. So I, I kind of like, and I, I kind of liked, I think, I mean, one thing I'll say for this show is that it does, it is sort of plugged into internet culture in a way and does have, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that, that sort of, it feels like it was, I mean, maybe not always in a good way, but it feels like it was written by people, you know, in their 20s and 30s um, in sort of a tangible kind of way. Mm -hmm. um, but how about Anthony? What did you think of this episode? I liked it. Um, I, I agree that it, I wasn't familiar specifically with the segment that, that Tom was talking about, but, uh, it, it 
even without that, it did have a slightly derivative feeling to it. I mean, certainly there are elements that feel similar to um, Stranger Things and there are elements that mm-hmm. feel, I mean, not that this makes it derivative, but, but I made me think of um, the, uh, the, the, the recent Black Mirror interactive episode, um, Bandersnatch. Um, and so it felt like there were sort of, that there were things that I sort of had kind of experienced that were kind of in the same space. And I don't think it necessarily went to many surprising places with it. But overall, it just felt like, Everything was done well. The, the character of Andrew and, um, the way he sort of, you know, wants to break into video game journalism and, you know, the, the, his relationship with some of the other characters felt, um, pretty well done. So I, I, I wouldn't, I think I understand why it's not the first because I think it tonally it's pretty different from all the other episodes. So I think yeah. it wouldn't have sort of set it off on the, on the right foot, but, um, I, I agree that it is one of, one of the stronger ones, even if sort of, if I sort of break down the elements, I'd be like, oh yeah, I've seen that before. I've seen that before, but it was, it was still like just well done. Yeah. I agree yeah. with that. Yeah. I mean, I was kind of thinking like the last Starfighter, but I, I feel like any game oh, or yeah. any, I love that any movie. Sh- but I feel like any show about a video game, any like science fiction show about a video game is going to somehow involve the video game becoming real, you know, or you're trapped mm-hmm. in the video game or something like what else, you know, what other direction would you go with it? So um, I don't know. I, I thought the fact that he defeats the monster by getting a kill screen, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. That was um, cool. Yeah. Oh, that was that was good. Yeah. And I mean, really, my only uh, the only thing I, I really sort of wondered about was that there's this scene where, you know, like I mentioned, there's this this guy who works at the arcade that the main character has a crush on. And there's this scene where he thinks they're having a moment and sort of leans in to kiss him. And the guy's just like, whoa, what are you doing? And I felt like that like needed some more resolution somehow. Yep, um, I agree. I was waiting I, for that resolution that never really came. Yeah, so uh, that that just sort of left me hanging. I, I thought they they should have had some conversation about that at the end or something. But um but other than that, I I thought I thought it was, you know, you know, like not as Tom is saying, maybe not the most original premise of all time or anything, but I thought it was you know, like an entertaining episode and I liked the characters. Yeah. Um any other thoughts on Plebeus before we move on? I love the Commodore 64 at the beginning. <laughs> I was, uh, I also, Andrea was a, was an arcade game geek when I was a kid. So in the eighties. So I, I did, I did, that did resonate with me a lot, except that it was aesthetically the way everything looked was so similar to that. You should, yep. you should go check out, check it out on YouTube because it'll blow your mind how, how similar it is. Oh yeah, it was. Um, all right, cool. So then next episode, episode five, Bob, um, Anthony, what'd you think of Bob? Actually, wait, let me give a, you know, let me say what it's about. So, so there's a, sure. um, an army therapist and she's assigned to counsel, uh, sort of like a giant brain in a vat sort of thing that the NSA is using to track terrorists. Um, and it's unhappy and she sort of has to get to the core and, and she's kind of unhappy too. And, and so they sort of, she has to get to the core of why it's unhappy and, um, then they sort of become friends. So what you, Anthony, what'd you think of this episode? Well, you know, I, I was thinking about this episode when, when Tom was talking about the idea of anthology shows and how a lot of times you have sort of a standout episode and then stuff that you sort of forget. But except to me, this episode is like an episode that has like a standout idea and moment. And then the rest of it was like just okay, which was just the character of Bob and this idea that he is not, you know, a giant machine or even a giant brain, but rather like, this giant brain encased in this cube of meat <laughs> and that you actually see this giant cube of meat 
And every like I I have a hard, I was like trying really hard to remember the rest of the plot of this episode because <laughs> that moment when she walks in and yeah. she just and you actually see Bob was so good and so surprising and I really didn't know where it was going that the rest I mean it's not I don't think it was a the rest of it was bad but I just think that specific moment was so good that it kind of overwhelmed everything else. I mean, I think the Constance Wu character um, of Jane, I mean, it's also kind of interesting to see her because obviously as of, you know, cra- the release of Crazy Rich Asian, she's a much <laughs> bigger star now than she was probably when she when she made this. But I think the the, the character notes of, of how they handle that character are well done. Um, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in terms of how they handle the uh, the NSA and the idea that, you know, we probably aren't really thrilled with the idea of the NSA and of this, like, surveillance computer, but we're not necessarily going to address too much of it ad- directly. We're just kind of going to make these kind of cutting jokes about it. So there were a lot of things I liked about it, but mostly I just thought that visual was so good. No, I completely agree with you that the Bob visual is amazing and uh, that character is is amazing. The episode, this was my least favorite episode, and I was just sort of a little bit restless watching it and waiting for it to be over, and I wasn't sure if it was just because I was tired or something, and so I went back, and and like you were saying, like I had a a hard time remembering all the beats of the story afterward, which usually I I remember that stuff pretty clearly. So I actually went back and watched it again just to see, and I'm like, yeah, I mean, like, I was, and I was kind of restless and waiting for it to be over again. And there's nothing in the episode that I think is particularly wrong. Like every, everything in it, I think is pretty well done and, you know, makes sense and the characters are good. And, um, I thought that some of the music I think is amazing. Um, but just the, the overall, uh, I just found it a little dull and I don't, I can't put my finger on why exactly, but, um, Andrea, what'd you think of Bob? Actually, can you ask Tom first? Because I want to hear everybody else's opinion um, before <laughs> okay. I uh, weigh in on this one, if you don't mind. Okay, Tom, Tom what'd you think of Bob? I kept thinking of this as the Goodwill HAL 9000 Christmas special. <laughs> uh, it was very, it, you know, it was like she was she was like a Goodwill hunting kind of psychiatrist, had to go in and talk to this HAL-like computer, and then the Christmas element came in. Um, I, I totally agree with Anthony that it was a really nice shocker with the Bob meeting. I really like that. And I agree that you can kind of, uh, that's a nice way of putting it. There's like a standout moment within the episode and you can kind of forget the rest of the episode because that works so well. Um, I did feel that a lot of it was uneven. There were some good moments. There were some funny moments like when she says, uh, you know, they put the hood on her at the end to, to transport her out and, and she, she sniffs and she goes, do you guys even wash your hoods? Is this the same hood? I thought that was great. Um. I really liked, uh, uh, there were so many moments in it that were so, I felt were so off, but there were so many moments that, uh, like, Bob's analysis of her really made me feel for her character. I was like, oh, it's a really cool way to, to make you feel for a TV character, to have somebody else analyze them and have it really hit home to where the person, you can see on the person, on her face, like, he's he's got me. Um, I thought that, yeah. you know, that made Let's just explain that, Tom. So, so yes, yeah, so she um, spends a, a lot of time away from her family, and it's because really her family is doing fine without her, and she needs to be needed. And so she spends all her time with these soldiers who are really, you know, have a lot of psychological issues that they need to work through. And so this is sort of this this dilemma for her is like, I love my family and I want to be there for them, but I also need to feel needed and they don't need me. I, I, I agree. I thought that was really interesting. 
Yeah, I thought that was nice. I thought that was a really nice save the cat moment at the beginning. Andrea, I didn't go to film school. <laughs> where, where, uh, you want where, to explain what the save the cat? Uh, yeah, is? so there's a book, there's a, there's a famous screenwriting book called Save the Cat where, uh, I don't remember much of the book, but the premise of the book, the, the title of the book comes from the idea that if you want to engage your audience, one of the best ways to do it is at the beginning, have the main character like go out of his or her way to save a cat. And then go on with the rest of the movie, which which right away Dave Kirtley would be like, I am all about this movie because they just saved the cat, <laughs> and I know this because I watch your Facebook page and I see the <laughs> you put up. But but anyway, well, that, that's so a, a, that's nice a metaphor. It's it's not literally save the cat. It's like you have the main <laughs> no, character I, do something <laughs> good so that you right. you like them immediately off the bat. Right, exactly. Yeah, I didn't mean she actually saved the cat because she didn't. But she, she, there's at the beginning, she's really late. She wants to get home. She hasn't been home in forever. She's overseas somewhere and she wants to get home and she's trying to leave. And, uh, suddenly her, her, her bunkmate comes in and is crying because he's real upset. He's having a hard time dealing with being deployed and, you know, being, being at war. And, uh, and so she, she looks at her duffel bag and she's, you know, she's already said she's late. Uh, then she just sits down and talks to him, you know, which, which I thought right then I was like, oh, this is a really good person. And that's clearly, you know, they did that on purpose. Beautiful save the cat moment made, <laughs> really did make me feel for her. Um, and I also liked at the end, I liked Bob's analysis of all the people on the subway car. I guess not at the end, but toward the end, he, he, he says the reason that he, he lost track of this terrorist is because he was looking at all the other people on the subway car and because of his, omniscience he can see into all of their lives and he can see like this one woman has this problem and you know this this guy's kid has cancer and this other person has this problem and he can see all their lives and he he feels so much for him and he says you asked me at the beginning if i could cry he says i haven't stopped crying yeah i thought that was beautiful absolutely beautiful i, I thought it was re- i really wanted to like the part where he becomes like at the end he becomes santa claus and you know real like digital um, drone powered Santa Claus gives toys to everybody. I really wanted to like that, but I just thought the production quality of it was so off. It just didn't seem to work for me. But overall, like it felt like one of those Twilight Zone episodes from the original black and white show where you were like, oh, they had fun. It was Christmas time and they decided to do something goofy and fun. And there were some cool moments, but you kind of had to be like, okay, I'll just kind of suspend my disbelief for, for some of this on purpose. Well, well, right. The the big thing that I I couldn't suspend my disbelief in was she she talks the engineer guy Chris I think was his name into mm-hmm. like basically committing treason and going to jail in order to do one one nice last thing for Bob <laughs> and like if in an, even in an episode granted it's an episode where there's like a giant brain and meat thing like that was the thing that just my my suspension of disbelief broke at that point and i i thought that really needed to be handled differently you know that uh that they, they get that she needs to get bob plugs back in or turn back on or whatever in some way that's that's not just so hard to buy i think the one thing i would say in defense of that moment um was that i think the line i could be misremembering is is that the character says is oh i'm gonna i'm so fired for this rather than like something more serious so you I think I bought it because it felt like the stakes were a little lower. No, no, but he, he, literally, right that he it, literally says, I'm going to jail for this. I, I actually wrote it down. Oh, did he? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, then I take it back. Yeah, no, that was, um, <laughs> I guess it just didn't bother me for some reason. Uh, so, so Andrew, do you want to give us your long-awaited reaction to the <laughs> episode? Yes. So, I completely disagree with all of you 
I thought this was one of the best things I've seen in a long time. I th- I was genuinely crying during it and laughing at the same time. Constance Wu and um, Megan Mullally are two of the funniest actresses. They're amazing actresses. I thought the script was perfect. Um, like when, when Bob is dying, I was, I was genuinely crying. And then Megan Mullally comes in and I'm laughing again. So yeah, I don't know what the hell are you talking about. <laughs> I genuinely don't. I absolutely loved it. And I will remember this. It's one of those episodes that I will remember forever. Um, genuinely beautiful. So you're all wrong, essentially, is what I'm saying. Well, no, well, I'm, I'm happy, I'm happy that you, uh, that, 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 that you liked it so much. Yeah. Yeah. I love yeah, it. Yeah. And, and you went to film school. So if, if, anybody, <laughs> if, it, if the showrunner is listening, he can go, well, those other two don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. 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 I'm still getting nailed for the, for the, how I felt about the Patton Oswald thing, but at least this will save me. Fingers crossed. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, I genuinely absolutely loved it. Loved it. That's inter- that's interesting to me, Entry, because you said that the Kronos was slow paced, mm-hmm. and to me, it felt like like Kronos, like something was happening, like every two seconds in that ep- something new was happening every two seconds in that episode. And to me, this one, I would have said out of if out of any of them, was the slow paced one. No, no, not not for me. I thought it was very well paced. the The scenes were short to the point. They all worked. The dialogue was fantastic. Um, the Kronos one, just like nothing. They would, there was just a lot of dialogue and nothing really happened. It felt for me, um, uh, you know, after the, after the Patton Oswald one, um, I was willing to give anything a try. Um, so the Cronus one just saved it, but I still thought it was a little slow, but this one was just, what do you, wait, what what do you mean nothing happens? I mean, like, I just like characters popping in and back in time and grabbing guns and shooting people in the head and like when they get to that yes absolutely but i just thought at the beginning it felt a little still a little slow for me personally i mean maybe if i went back and watched it um it it would be different but my first impression and and like i said i was coming directly off of the pat Oswalt one where my brain was just fried from hate Uh, so (laughs) that could have had something to do with my reaction to chronos um but at this, at once this one star, I just, I love this. I thought it was incredibly good filmmaking, um, and incredibly great writing and acting. There was nothing about it I didn't love. So there you go. It's always wow. easier. It's always easier to say, talk about the reasons that you hate something, um, than you love something. Um, so, you know, at this point, I, I loved it so much that I stopped taking notes and just allowed it to, allowed myself to watch it, uh, without any kind of criticism. Um, without my critical brain uh, engaged. So I, all I can say is I, I absolutely loved it. I, I laughed, I cried. It's a whole cliche going there. But yeah, um, I, I've got nothing bad to say about it. I thought it was one of the, like I said, one of the best things I've seen on television in a long time. So there you, you go. Were on, you were on board with it, as Robert McKee would say. Absolutely <laughs> on board. I, I didn't go to film school. But Robert, <laughs> Robert McKee is, you know, he's, if anybody doesn't know who he is, he's a, this famous uh, uh, film. Uh, know, was he a screenwriter? And now he, he's a, now he's like a teacher. He um, he he does all these seminars that everybody goes to, um, re- screenwriting seminars where he di- you know he tells you about how uh, scenes should work and how dialogue should work, um, and uh, then they then you um, 
dissect uh, Casablanca and, and they shows you exactly how it works and why it works. And, right. Um, and if you actually, if you watch the movie adaptation, uh, he, yes. the, the main character in that goes to one of his classes and yeah. figures out the solution to the movie, figures out the solution to his script by going to that seminar. Yeah. Um, and, so, well, and also he gets yelled, he gets yelled at by the Robert McKee <laughs> yes. character, which is pretty, right. I, and I right. have taken the Robert McKee seminar. I have been there and all oh, of cool. it, all of it is true where he, if your cell phone goes off, he makes you get up and give him $10. It's actually true. He will yell That's at awesome. you. It's hilarious. But he does, he does say, I, I read a book or a quote from him or something and he said, look, if you're the, the main thing is if you can get the viewer on board, logic doesn't matter. All these other things yes. don't really matter. If the viewer's on board with what you're exactly. doing, you can make any mistake in the book and it doesn't matter. But if the viewer doesn't get on board, you can do everything right and they'll still hate it. Yes. So, uh, so yes. all the things about, you know, when I was watching at the end when the drones were delivering the presents and I was watching it and going, what is going on here? This isn't quite doing it for me. You didn't care about that because you were, you were so on board with what, well, what was happening. Well, here's the thing with the, with the presents thing and the Santa thing. It was all set up. That whole thing and talking about Santa and then that was the payoff to that, to that setup from the, from earlier. So everything they set up was paid off, um, which is the hallmark of, of a great script. Um, personally, not personally. Yeah, I guess, it is. I, I guess what didn't work for me about that moment was, was more the, the reactions on the characters, fa on the actors' faces as the presents were dropping down. Like, hey, presents. And I was like, what? Well, I'd be like, what the? <laughs> there's, there's presents falling on me. Like before, I'd be like, "Ah, hey, this is great. I'm getting presents dropped." Up. You know, like they're out in the middle of the street or whatever. Or, I don't know. I I was kind of weirded See, out by but that. At, but. but at that at that point, you, you've it, you've you've gone outside the realm of reality, and you're just buying it, or at least I bought it, and it was just funny yeah. and fun and sweet. Um, you know, the 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 conceit of this um, created. Uh, this AI being more empathic than actual humans um, was really what got me um, personally. I did love that. I, I did think that was great. Yeah. All right. Well, look again, I'm just glad that Andrea enjoyed the episode so much and I don't want to like <laughs> shit all over it now. So let's let her have her moment and uh, <laughs> move on to the, to the next episode. So th this is uh, the, la the sixth and final episode is called impulse. And it's about a um, there's a a teenage girl and she's an aspiring pro gamer and she has to play against this like celebrity gaming guy who goes by the who's, who has like endorsements and everything and he goes by the name of Kilohertz like K I L L O Hertz and so um, so this sort of shady like drug dealer guy gives her this energy drink basically that's an, a performance enhancing drug. And she drinks just a little bit of it and then sort of like it basically like there's something called snapback where she lives through then the next couple hours. But then all the all those memories at the end of that disappear. And so it's like she's jumped, you know, a couple hours into the future and doesn't know what's happened in the interim. Um, but then in order to to be to win the big tournament against her rival, she ends up drinking like the whole bottle. <laughs> and then there's this like snaps like. Ten years into the future, or something, and now she has four kids, and and now it's like this post-apocalyptic wasteland because the president was drinking this energy drink and like started a nuclear war, uh, you know, during his blackout or, or something like that. And and this was my favorite episode of this uh, of this season, and I, the reason that I wanted to talk basically about this show because, um, you know, all these other episodes I've seen exactly the same story or a similar story 
pretty much, you know, multiple times before. And I felt like this one was just so surprising and inventive and original. Uh, and I just loved it. Just the, the whole snapback idea. Uh, I, I thought, you know, it was just, I had no idea what was going to happen. You know, or that, that was a, came as a complete surprise to me. And I was like, oh, I've, I, I've never seen that before. And so anyway, I really liked it. So I don't know, maybe, um, I don't know who's, who's, who's next and who hasn't talked. How about Tom? what you think of Impulse? Um, I, I thought this was awesome. I thought they saved the best for last. I thought the acting was phenomenal. I thought the directing and the production quality were amazing. The gunfight near the end was amazing. I thought the story really made a lot of sense. It was, uh, you know, it was, it was a perfect metaphor for parenting. I, I have two kids, two years old and four years old. This is basically what happens to all adults. You basically are, uh, you know, you're you're hanging out one day playing video games, and then next Tuesday, wham, you're like standing there, and you're going, "Oh, ho, no, honey, don't hand me that. That's a poop." I've actually said that. <laughs> I've actually I've actually literally said that to my kid, or actually, it was verbally said that to my kid, where where he walks up and he's like, "Hey, look what I found." I'm like, "Oh, no, honey, that's a poop. Put that down." Like <laughs> that line, I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is like." It was the whole, and the whole episode was so funny and so brutal. It's like you start out, you're a teenager, you're going to conquer the world, you're like doing all this cool stuff. And then, like, wham, you got like kids handing you poops, and the whole world is falling apart. It was basically, my favorite stories are like this basically hyperbole, but meticulously imagined and really funny and brutal. You could, you could actually make this the formula for any good science fiction story. Just take like a real life situation, look at the struggle that's at the bottom of it. And then exaggerate it into an absurdist realm, but make the details and the story logic so vivid that it's indistinguishable from reality. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I, I thought the humor, it was, had so much humor in it, but it was almost just an accident of taking that approach. Um, so yeah, th- this, this one just completely blew me away. And I, and I love the selfishness theme that like, you know, not only did they take that and say like, look, this is what happens to you, but then they said, look, and here's like, here's like the choice that this, that this, woman then makes is she goes well you know i i can't look back and say like oh isn't this a tragedy that that last tuesday i was this hot young video gamer and now i'm this you know got like wide hips and i'm battling all this garbage in my life and everything's hard and and awful and like the whole world is falling apart and she's like well you know what i need to i need to buckle down and realize that this is not about me i thought it was a really cool thing was funny it was a cool theme it was well done i I was just blown away by this one well yeah and when you're talking about the humor just one thing that just pops into my head is there's this part where you know the whole time they've been afraid of the death lizards that are lurking outside the the walls of their compound and then at one point it turns out that there's like a biker gang called the death lizards and she's like wait the death lizards are people and and her husband's like yeah what did you think they were giant mutated lizards And then, and then, like the the leader of the Death Lizards is like the her rival from the video game, and that was a, I thought that was a great twist. I didn't see that coming at all. Like, yeah, I, I just really like this. But so, how about uh, Anthony? What would you think of uh, Impulse? Yeah, yeah, it was it was definitely one of my favorites. I don't know if I would say it was my absolute favorite because to me it felt more. I liked it more just for the kind of anything goes quality of it, and um, yeah, definitely the that twist. You know, fifteen minutes in, where you're just like, wait this is not <laughs> what is happening like how how did we get you know this far into the future and then all the little details about that future like just the fact that it's the drug that caused the future and that the people are sort of you know all these people are sort of snapping back over the past decade 
um, I thought was just like really well handled. And, and they're just like a lot of small touches I liked, like the fact that the, um, the drug dealer Kojima, um, is like, he's like always eating something and just like, like, yeah. he's just like something about that makes him like this very vivid character. I mean, I think the, the actor also just did a, did a really good job with that role. Um, in terms of the central plot, um, it was interesting because it, it also brings back something that Andrea was saying earlier about like, you know, a hallmark of good screenwriting is this idea of like, you know, setting up and paying off things. And, and I think for me at least, it's more that there's like this balance of, of course, you want it to be this self, like really well constructed screenplay, but you also have to sort of create the illusion of randomness and surprise. So it's not just like, oh, like I think like a lot of like bad formulaic tel- television, like the episode will begin and you'll be like, oh, the character has this, you know, problem or thing he has to solve. And then at the end, oh, okay, they've learned their lesson and they've solved it, solved it. And I thought there were moments where this, ep- like the, the central arc skirted with that a little bit too much of, okay, well, this is still her, like that this, you know, the, the appearance of the death lizards is what allows her to sort of confront this problem that she's had since the very beginning of the episode. But because the execution of it was so crazy, um, I, I enjoyed it, even if I didn't find it maybe quite as emotionally resonant as, as some of the other episodes, just again, having them be these people in costume. And I think also because the show had, you know, the production had been, you know, I think there are a few nice touches, but in general, it's been not like the most, you know, high production value show. So I, I genuinely didn't know if they were going to show the gunfight, but the fact that they actually executed a gunfight and it was pretty fun and well done. Um, I think I also just gave them a lot of points for that. So, so overall, I was pretty happy with it. Let me just add, you mentioned Kojima. I'll just throw in that. So that's obviously a reference to Hideo Kojima, who's the creator of the Metal right. Gear series. Um. It was a you know, video game series, if people don't know that. Uh, so how about Andrea? What did you think of Impulse? Well, I had a very uh, strange um, uh, situation of watching this, which is I accidentally watched the end Oh, first. no. Oh, However, no. How, Andrea. But, but here's the thing. So it, it basically ended up being like a Reservoir Dog situation where, you know, if you haven't seen the movie Reservoir Dogs, it's it starts at the end as 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 uh, Tarantino films frequently do um, and actually made it even better for me because I came in in the middle of this Mad Max post-apocalyptic gunfight and then I had to go back to the beginning and it's this modern, you know, teenager playing video games and my whole the whole time I'm sitting there going, how the how the hell <laughs> did, it, did it go from this to a post-apocalyptic gunfight. So it, it actually upped the tension for me when I was watching. Um, so, it, you know, what happened, what ended up, it, it ended up being a happy accident. Um, so I agree that I thought it was great. Uh, the, the script was great. The premise was great. Uh, that gunfight was fantastic. Um, and it was, it, it was not only fun and inventive and good sci-fi, but it ended up being like a good family story too, like a, a good story about, um, you know, come, becoming an adult and finding out it's not about you and also, you know, giving it, giving it up for your kids. Um, cause that's essentially what she does. She gives her life for her kids. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it I, and I had a different experience from you guys because I, I accidentally had that, that watched the ending first. But, um, overall, it really resonated with me, um, as, as a good piece of filmmaking. 
The only thing I'll say, the only sort of one sort of slight letdown for me was I felt like, you know, at the end, she drinks the whole bottle of the energy drink. And then the Kojima character earlier, he is, he said, like, yeah. she's like, I won't come back again, will I? And he's like, not unless you live to be 102 or something. Yeah. yeah. And I thought there should have been. She should have woken up again, and she's now 102. And, <laughs> like, you know, you see, like, I don't know, there's, like, a statue to her as the, like, savior of the oh, humanity wow. or something. That did seem like what they were setting up. I mean, not necessarily the statue, but the idea of one more jump. And I thought, I, I'm not 100% sure, but was there a little sound effect? Like that's maybe indicated that that's what was coming. Um, well, I didn't feel that. I, I actually thought it ended really well. It's just it. it wait, wait, when, wait. What, what, sorry, sorry, Anthony. What, what do you mean by a sound? I don't. I didn't catch the sound of like some sort of like 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 the sound. I thought um, I should have double checked this before I did the episode, but I, I thought the sound was building a little bit towards something as as she sort of is like you know um, lying there, like as if you're about like it was building to a cut. And then you would see this future. Um, but also just, yeah, dramatically, I felt like it was leading towards one more jump ahead because of that line that you're referring to. So I was a little disappointed that that didn't happen, but it still felt like there was an implied jump. So I didn't mind as much that, um, you know, that you didn't actually see it. Mm. But Andrea, sorry, you were saying? I, I, I don't think that there is a jump. I think she dies. I think it ends with her death. Not, yeah, I not, agree. I don't think she's coming back at all. She's, she's dead. And and it's it's a sacrifice. So she sacrifices. Herself. She was killed by the drug, or she was killed by the something that happens. She's in the fight. killed by the bullet. Fight. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I agree. I I thought it was a really good ending, but I think Dave, I think your ending's even better. Her waking up at 102, and there's a statue of her. That I think that would have. I think if the people who who wrote this hear you, they're gonna go, oh man, wish <laughs> I thought of that. See, I, I disagree on that. I think you know, ending on a death, a, a sacrifice death, is is the best way to end, personally. But I, I just feel well, like I guess someone sacrificing their life at the end is such a familiar, you know, way for a story to end. But, and but still this whole satisfying. story, but this whole story is built around the brilliant, you know, conceit of jumping forward in time because of this drink. So yeah, I think they should have done it twice. Well, and then because it seemed like the sacrifice, to me, like the sacrifice of her drinking that is the sacrifice of right. giving up her memory of the rest of the time. Right. So if she was going to get killed, that seems like a different, a slightly different story. I mean, I don't think it matters that much, but to me, I, I, yeah, it feels more resonant if she survives but loses all those memories. Yeah. Yeah, I would have liked that. I think either way, that there's a sacrifice there, and I think the sacrifice that she made giving her life is is kind of just metaphorical for real real parenting like you're going to give your life up yeah. you are and, and you're not you know you're not necessarily going to die in a gunfight but you all the stuff that you love doing you know you want to you want to play video games and and do cool stuff and go to Ibiza and you're not going to do any of that that's not going to happen anymore you're going to stay here and do all this stuff and and uh, I thought that was really cool. I didn't think it was a story about drugs either at all. Like at no. first I was like, oh, it's like a drugs theme. Well, it's not a drug. She didn't drink a drug. She drank selfishness and sloth. Yeah. And uh, and then, you know, had to get back up out of it. And it, it also mirrors the what her father did for her of sacrificing his life and taking this job right. that he doesn't want to do uh, oh, yeah. in order for her to, you know, live her life. Um, so it, it's this, it mirrors that the beginning of her father's sacrifice and then her sacrifice at the end. That's really cool. Yeah. I was just going to say, Tom, you know, maybe you miss out on going to Ibiza, but probably you also miss out on going to Fire Festival. So it's kind of like, <laughs> <bounce out. laughs> uh, 
Yeah, it's not, it's not the, it's not actually like, like dying. It's, it's pretty okay, but. Um, all right, cool. So, um, I don't know, any other, pretty much out of time, but any other, any other, other final thoughts on Impulse? Um, I thought the, the, uh, one more show I wanted to bring up, which is actually a radio show that had a lot of my favorite author in it, Robert Sheckley, is called X Minus One. And it's the first, the first anthology program I ever came across, even before Twilight Zone, when I was a little kid, and probably about the same time I came across Twilight Zone. It was a radio show. They used to play it on NPR, and it was all these really cool short stories, and it was, it was very similar to this or Twilight Zone. Um, I, I, I just thought it was, a uh, I don't know something else I wanted to throw in there, but it doesn't really factor in too well, much. Well, no, let me let me pick up on that, Tom, because yeah, because I, I I'm, I'm always saying I I tend to like short stories more than novels, and I tend to like anthology shows more than series, and it's because, like I was saying, like you can have a story like, especially now that we've talked about impulse, you can have a story like this where the character like jumps twenty years ahead in time, and you're like, wow, I had no idea that was going to happen, and you can't you can't do that with a normal series, you know, um, and so I like the. That, that it can constantly surprise you and do things you weren't expecting. And especially, I, I, I totally think that they should do more anthology series where they adapt short stories, you know, classic science fiction short stories by authors like Sheckley. I mean, I think that would be great. I mean, in my ideal world, you know, you would just turn on TV and it would be like 80% science fiction anthology shows and then like <laughs> 20% The Expanse, you know, and then that would just be the television. Um, well, they can be really, they can be really fun. There, there was one, there's one show that sticks with me that I, that, that I remember is X minus one from like when I was like eight years old. It was about this film noir detective and he finds this tree in the middle of the Amazon that defends itself by growing really fast and throwing copies of whatever you throw at it. So if you hit it with an axe, it throws a hundred axes at you. It rains axes. And there's this whole plot with like, they're going to try to throw money at it and get rich and, and then this, these bad guys like corner the detective up against the tree and they're going to kill him. And he's like, what do I do? What do I do? And so he just like throws himself at the tree as hard as he can. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Well, so if you, if you think about that, I guess it's not, the penny's not dropping, but he throws himself <laughs> at the tree. No. <laughs> well, no, then there's a lot of himself, right? Oh, okay. You got it. You just didn't think it was that clever. All right. I, it stuck with me because I thought it was like super clever. And, and yeah, you can't, like, where do you go with that? If you put that in a, you can't put that in a regular show, but you could put that in an anthology because, you know, suddenly there's a hundred of the main character and you're like, what do you do with that if you're in a serial show? But if you're in an anthology show, you can just move on from it and say, that was really fun. Let's go do something else. Although I do, I mean, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I do always kind of wish that you had serial, serialized shows, you know, where it's like, yeah, something like that happens. Like the character throws himself at a tree and now there's a hundred of them and they actually don't undo that by the end of the episode. You know, they're like, okay, that's the premise of the show. Now there's a hundred of them. And now you know, like, <laughs> seasons th three through six, we're going to be dealing with that. You know, like they never, you know, they never, like the only thing I can really think of is in Battlestar Galactica when mm -hmm. the Cylons actually do like conquer the planet that they're on and then it jumps ahead. Like... That was the most sort of surprising thing like that in a in a science fiction like serialized show like that 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 kind of sticks out to me. Yeah, you're almost calling for like an improv approach to a, to a serial show like where I I was watching this documentary on Bill Bill uh, Murray on Netflix which is very good by the way and they were talking about how he came from improv where the whole central tenet premise of improv is you never say no to anything. If something, somebody says you're a tree, you go, okay, I'm a tree. You don't say, no, I'm not a tree. I'm this other thing. You say, okay, I'm a tree, and you run with it. 
And uh, that's kind of what you're saying is like, if there's a hundred of the guy, just make there be a hundred of the guy and move forward. Always move, always say yes and move forward. Never try to like undo anything. Yeah. So, so Andrea, like, so yeah, you, you really didn't like the show starting out, but then it sounds like you liked it a lot by the end. So oh, yeah. would you watch a season two of the show? I would. Yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah, I, I told you, I told you what, I mean, I don't know if there's going to be a season two, like, like we were saying, this came out in April 2017. And so it's yeah. been almost two years. So I don't know if they're ever going to make any more. Uh, you know, there's a website I follow called canceled com, And it says sort of, you know, undetermined that, you know, the, the people who made this may have just moved on to other projects, but they might be planning to come back at some point. But I would say the odds seem to me against yeah. against it. I would imagine probably it just, you know, like well, not not enough. I mean, especially since I'd never even, like if anyone would have heard of it, yeah. it would have been me and I didn't. Yeah. So I, I, I think then, it probably didn't have. But then again, you never heard of Endless either. And that ended up being one of the best movies, frankly, of <laughs> that I've ever seen. So. Well, no, no, not in terms of, you know, it being good or not, but just in terms of like, are they going to make a season mm. two? If I, you know, like it just seems seems like if I haven't heard of it, probably not enough people watched it to justify a season two. I mean, I guess anything's possible. Right. But. Well, you were you were saying at the beginning that that um, they were told to make like a, a do their own production proof of concept thing. This could have been their proof of concept for a larger project or a feature film. So, you know, they got it out. They did this. People saw what they can do. And now they're moving on to something bigger. Just well, the thing, though, is I, I saw on a panel that they were talking about, like, their plans for season two. Oh, they so, were talking about it. Hmm. Yeah. And that was, like, you know, almost two, two years, years ago. ago. So, hmm. I mean, so fingers crossed, but I'm I'm not super optimistic at this point. But so, Anthony, are you all on board for season two? I am. Um, I think um, I, I think that overall I liked the show more than necessarily came across on my episode-by-episode episode discussions because I think I just had a really good time watching it. And your discussion of anthology shows actually reminded me of one thing that I think a lot of anthology shows tend to be very concept-driven. And as a result – and this is – I mean, this is a generalization. I'm sure there are a lot of exceptions, including probably some of the segments that I do like. Um, but a lot of anthology shows tend to be – you know, like have sort of more stock characters and, and character types rather than fully – drawn characters. And I think actually the one of the things that Dimension 404 is really good at is it draws very vivid characterization in, in a short period of time. And, and so I think that even when I thought other things about the episodes were kind of wonky, um, really pulled me through. So I, 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 I still would, would definitely recommend it and, and hope to see a season two. Right. And, and also, I mean, I felt like the people who made this, that this was a labor of love in, in some you know, su- substantial way that I, I didn't feel this didn't feel at all like cynical or, you know, just going through the motions at all to me. I felt no. like, you know, people were totally invested in this. And, you know, I always I would like to see that sort of passion rewarded, you know, whenever possible. Yeah, I agree with that. All right. So any uh, any final thoughts, Tom, any final thoughts? No, I'd, I'd watch it again for sure. In the hopes of at least if nothing else, in the hopes of uh, seeing something like that last episode again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Andrea, any final thoughts? No, um, yeah, I would definitely watch uh, a second series because uh, because they he won they won me over in the last three episodes. So um, so maybe that actually did work, uh, leading with their their uh, their softest three episodes and then finishing big. Um, so it worked on me because um, now I will go and see more. All right, and Anthony, any any final thought? 
no, um, I'm, I'm really glad I got to, to watch this show, and I'm hoping to make more. So you're really glad that I recommended this show to you, to you all? Yeah. That, that was the subtext, yes. <laughs> well, except for that dark, dark moment I had where I'm like, God damn it, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I came back. Now, let, that be, let that be a lesson to you. <laughs> I wouldn't have recommended it if it wasn't, if, if, you know. Although, I mean, I liked, I liked that episode. So all right. what is, I don't know what that proves, but... <laughs> Um, all right, cool. So let's uh, let's wrap things up there then. So we've been speaking with Anthony Ha, Andrea Kale, and Tom Grenzer. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Anthony Ha, Tom Grenzer, and to Andrea Kale for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Vin Nagel and Everyone is Going Conscious. Everyone is going conscious, writes, Wow, so amazing to get the opportunity to hear the most prominent science fiction authors chat with the most wonderful host in the history of geek culture. Nothing better if you're into this type of stuff. We are lucky to have these folks in our lives. So big thanks again to Everyone is Going Conscious for that great review. Special thanks as well to A. Alfred Ayash, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Neil Easterbrook, who just made a very generous contribution to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarrkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.